The sermon this morning is titled, Motivation to Deliver the Message. Motivation to Deliver the Message. And uh, I must confess, I'm supposed to lose five to 10 pounds. And I'm supposed to do exercise on top of that. And you know, the doctor's been singing that song to me for quite a while, the same tune, but I've been putting it off. I've been procrastinating, delaying, uh, getting onto it later and never getting onto it. But I'll tell you that the reason that I was procrastinating and delaying and not doing my duty to exercise and to eat better and to lose some weight was I didn't have sufficient motivation. Uh, There was times in my life when I just didn't have enough motivation to do those things, but I'm happy to God's glory to say and now have enough motivation. And uh, some things that motivate me to do this is that some of the clothes in my closet I wasn't able to wear anymore. And um, I was getting to the point that when I bent over to pick something up off the ground, I asked myself, was there anything else I could do while I was down there? (laughs) And in fact, I think I was suffering to some degree with uh, carpenter's disease. I was like a level. The bubble was always in the middle. Carpenter's disease. And then there was the matter of snoring. Now, that's way too much information, right? Nonetheless, I needed to lose some weight. I needed to exercise better. And by God's grace, in the last three weeks, I've lost seven pounds. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. I've got a long ways to go, but with his help, I'm going to make it. Because I'm motivated. I'm encouraged that I don't want to... Um, for one thing, have diabetes. My maternal grandfather became a diabetic around my age in his life, and so I sure don't want that. So I've got a motivation to, to do better, to exercise and to eat better, and I hope you'll pray for me that I'll follow through with that. All that to tell you that there's a certain discipline of the Christian life that is a lot like eating better, losing weight, and exercising, in that we all agree with it, we all think it's good, This spiritual discipline I'm talking about is something we believe everybody should be doing. But the fact is we often don't plug ourselves into doing this particular thing, although we know it's good, we know God will help us to do it, and that is to share our faith. Some people call it witnessing. Other people call it sharing the way of salvation. Other people say giving the gospel. We all know, we who know Christ and have responded to the gospel at some point in our lives, we know it's the power of God and salvation for all who will believe. We know we're supposed to be uh, giving the gospel regularly, sharing our faith, telling people how to get to heaven through Christ. We all agree with that. But sometimes we lack sufficient motivation to actually do that. So this sermon, the second part of Paul's sermon in Acts 13, is going to give us four motivations to better share the gospel in our day-to-day lives. Motivation number one. Turn your Bibles to Acts 13, beginning at verse 26. And I'm just going to read the first verse, let you get there. Acts 13, beginning at verse 26, is the second half of the Apostle Paul's first sermon as recorded in the book of Acts, uh, preached at Pisidian Antioch. Uh, He was in the synagogue there as a missionary. He visited the synagogue. The synagogue ruler said, you know, do you have a word of exhortation for us? But basically, do you want to preach? And so Paul stood and preached this sermon we've been studying. We studied the first half last week and the second half uh, today. 
And so the first motivation for you and me sharing our faith more regularly is that God sent the gospel. It wasn't a man's bright idea. God sent the gospel to a planet full of sinners. I see that in verse 26 of Acts 13. Men and brethren, Paul preached, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you, watch, the word of this salvation has been sent. The word of this salvation is another way of saying the gospel, the good news, that Christ has died for sins and arisen from the dead. And Paul's pointing out to the persons who heard his sermon that this particular good news about getting to heaven, the gospel, the word of God to do with salvation, was sent from God to Pisidian Antioch, but this morning to Calvary Bible Church and through our missionaries that we've been praying for, hopefully, in the last few minutes, to the world. This gospel message has been sent by God. No one other than God has sent this. Verse 26 again, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among who fear God, for to you the word of this salvation has been sent from God. Sent from God. That should motivate us to share the gospel. You know I get mail like you do, and uh, mail that has... A window in the envelope is always not so thrilling to me. It's usually a bill. But there are some pieces of mail that I'm very urgent to open, that I have a high motivation not to leave unopened, that I know I better check it out because there's consequences if I don't check out a certain piece of mail and there could be some implications if I ignore it. What? Well, expected renewed credit cards or any piece of registered mail that I have to sign for before I get it. These are pieces of mail that are very important and serious to me. Or a letter that has three letters on the return address. And the three letters are I-R-S. They get my attention. If it says I-R-S on the return address, I, I open it right away. So what we are doing when we lovingly, prayerfully, obediently give the gospel to a person who's not yet saved is we are delivering heaven's most serious piece of mail possible to sinners here on earth. It's not junk mail. It's the most important correspondence that a loving God in heaven would have us as male people to deliver to persons not yet in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's motivating. The fact that the gospel and the way of salvation is sent to earth by God through us ought to motivate us to share our faith. The second motivation to sharing the gospel is that the Old Testament prophets presented the gospel. The Old Testament prophets presented this gospel that we now have. Verse 27, Paul's sermon goes on. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him, Christ. 
Paul's saying this gospel, this word of God to do with the way of salvation is presented in your synagogues, Antioch, Pisidia, every Sabbath. When the Old Testament prophets are read in your synagogue worship services, these prophets present the gospel that I'm preaching to you this day, Paul was saying in his sermon. And the way of salvation news which we spread as Calvary Bible Church, the same way of salvation truth that we spread is the same way of salvation truth that the Old Testament prophets wrote of. For example, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, four to six, gospel. Surely he, Messiah, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel in the Old Testament stated by the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of his Bible book. Or the prophet David. David was king, but he also was a prophet. And in Psalm 22, some of the most vivid descriptors of crucifixion were stated in Psalm 22 before crucifixion had ever entered the mind of any Phoenician who invented the torturous death. Centuries before crucifixion was even invented, Psalm 22 gave the gospel of what our Savior would go through in a crucifixion to pay for our sins. Listen, Psalm 22, 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Of course, Jesus said this from the cross seven centuries later. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent. The prophet David wrote of Calvary, crucifixion a substitutionary atonement by Jesus Christ for the world's sins. But there's more. Still in Psalm 22, verses 11 to 16, the psalmist says what Jesus Christ said from the cross seven centuries later, basically, be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me, and their mouths are like the roaring, raging lion. All the mockery of Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross, bleeding and dying and suffering to pay for your sins and the world's sins. goes on. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. By the way, the cause of death by crucifixion was always suffocation. But leading into that horrific way to die of being suffocated, the victim on the cross was dehydrated. Jesus Christ was dehydrated in that beating Palestinian hot sun as he hung on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. He was dehydrated. He wouldn't drink the pain-killing myrrh 
beverage that he offered him. He wouldn't deaden his senses so he couldn't feel all of the pain he needed to feel for our sins. He was dehydrated. I thirst, he said, from the cross. And here, seven centuries before, the psalmist David, under inspiration, wrote, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a less than flattering name for Gentiles. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And they pierced my hands and my feet. This is 700 years before they ever invented crucifixion. And yet the prophet David prophesied of the same good news message, the gospel, that we have entrusted to us. Amazing. That ought to motivate us. That the message we share is not a Johnny-come-lately message. It's a message that's been woven into the Old and the New Testaments throughout. Yes, a motivator. The Old Testament prophets presented the gospel. And Paul's point in his sermon was, guys, here we are in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. You've asked me to give a word of exhortation. I'm standing to give you the scriptures, and you have no excuse for rejecting God's word as it applies to salvation. Because every Saturday, every Jewish Sabbath, you assemble here and the Old Testament prophets are read in your hearing. Twenty-seven. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, Christ, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. So although these Way of Salvation, Old Testament prophecies, scriptures were read in the synagogue every Saturday. Those who heard those messages still crucified Christ. But they had no excuse. And the way of salvation, which little old you and little old me carry with us in our hearts as we go into the workforce tomorrow morning, or to the doctor's appointment tomorrow morning, or raising and homeschooling our children, or whatever we are doing in retirement, that same little old you and that same little old me, we have the same gospel message to take to a lost and a perishing Nassau. Motivation. The way of salvation news which we spread tomorrow and every day we get as alone from the Lord is the same good news that the Old Testament prophets spoke and then wrote down in the Old Testament scriptures. And this means at least two things. You ready? Number one, it means that the gospel is not the new kid on the block. The gospel was at the forefront of even the Old Testament time Jews. And the gospel has stood the test of time. It also means that the gospel is not just a message for the Gentiles. Paul was deep in Gentile country at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue when he was preaching the sermon we're studying right now. 
He was deep into Gentile country. He was in Gentile country, the furthest that the gospel had gotten so far since the church was born in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. He was deep in Gentile country, but he wanted the people in Gentile country, the Jewish people that were in the Jewish synagogue in that far remote Gentile part of the world, that the gospel wasn't just for the Gentiles, but it was also for the Jews. In fact, when you study what he wrote under inspiration in Romans 1 verse 16, he said, Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I hope you're not ashamed of it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first. Gospel is meant to go to the Jew first, but also for the Greek, the Gentile, the non-Jewish person. So let me see. We've got a gospel that was written of by Old Testament prophets. It's not the new kid on the block. It's not just a message for the Gentiles. In fact, it was a message that was to go to the Jews before the Gentiles. Now, I know this congregation, there are a lot of good cooks. Myself, I'm a much better eater than a cooker which is my problem in the introduction of the sermon, right? <laughs> I'm a much better eater than a cooker. But you have out there who are good cooks, and you are many, do you not have a lot of motivation to prepare a certain choice recipe that you know your family already enjoys, and it's been in your family with great success since your grandmother first made the dish? motivating. What shall, I make to, what shall I make when the family gets together on Sunday? Well, let's make a recipe that's been in our family since grandmother made it, and I know all my family love it. It's motivating to go to that go-to recipe, right? That go-to dish of food. That's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel is tried and true. It's the church's only message. We don't save the whales. We don't hug the trees. We don't try to solve all societal injustices as our main project. The gospel is the church's message. Service clubs can do other messages. The church has the message of giving them the good news that Christ has died for sins and risen from the dead. That's our message. It's tried and true. Now, cooks, we talked about that imaginary dish you're thinking of that your grandmother cooked first. It's been your family for these generations. You know your family loves to eat this dish. Or you, it's your go-to dish to cook for Sunday coming. What about the Bahamian person here, maybe a man or a woman, who has a, a wonderful recipe for conch salad. I mean, knock your socks off, it's so delicious. And somebody's coming uh, to the island, maybe like Jory and Mary, the next few days. You wanna share that recipe because it's so tasty. And you're thrilled that you know how to make it and you've got the ingredients to make it and you've made it and then you wanna share it, right? That's the gospel too. It's so wonderful, so savory for the spirit that you don't want to keep it just to yourself. You want to 
offer it to many others that they can enjoy it, be blessed by it. There's an ice cream company in Texas that Beth and I came to appreciate, uh, Bluebell. And on the Carter and Bluebell ice cream, it says something like this. We at Bluebell ice cream love the ice cream that we make. And we eat as much as we possibly can of it. And then we give the rest to you, our customers. That's the gospel. We have tasted to see that God is good. And we're just not going to hoard it to ourselves. We're going to share this wonderful message that a holy, true, and righteous God has made a way for reprobate rebels like me and you to be bought into his family, to be forgiven, to be given a new nature, to be given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and even to be given a home in heaven when it's all said and done. That's the gospel. Thrilling to share it. Spiritually savory. That's motivating. It's motivating to step back from this and say, this isn't just my bright idea. This was the message on the hearts of the Old Testament prophets because this was the message that God sent to the world, wrapped up in Christ. The third motivation for you and for me to share the gospel more regularly is that the fathers of Judaism were promised the gospel. The patriarchal fathers of the nation of Israel, God promised to them that a gospel was coming. Verse 32, skip ahead in the sermon to verse 32. Paul says in the synagogue, Antioch, Pisidian, and we declare to you glad tidings. Watch, that promise to which was made to the fathers. He says, this promise of the way to salvation that I'm preaching to you as I exhort you in the synagogue today was promised to your spiritual forefathers. Give me, let me give you some examples. Abraham. Well, let's start with Adam. Let's start with Adam. The Jewish nation not yet formed when Adam and Eve were created. I know that. But you don't have a nation of Israel if you don't have an Adam and an Eve, right? So in Genesis 3, the gospel is in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent who's tempted Eve and Adam and they've fallen into sin. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, that is the seed of the serpent, Satan, he shall bruise, excuse me, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, he shall bruise Satan on the head. You know how you kill a snake. You know how to kill a snake. You stomp on his head hard. Jesus Christ stomped on Satan the serpent's head on the cross, and he said he'd been successful when he said, it is finished. But the prediction also said that Messiah, seed of the woman's heel, 
would be bruised by Satan. You do realize that on a cross, the cross beam, hands nailed to the cross beam, feet nailed to the down beam, and usually a little seat so that would prolong the torture and elongate the time for suffocation, they put a little seat on the down beam. And so when the crucified man was struggling to breathe, he could sit on the seat and get a little bit of a respite from the weight of his body on the nail, nails on his hands. But to do that, you had to push up with the, your feet that were nailed to the down beam. And in the matter of pushing up with great effort, it bruised the heel that was underpinned by the spike on the down beam. Even in Genesis chapter 3, Adam was told that there would be a savior for human sinners who in humanity would be related to Adam and Eve. He would bruise Satan on the head, but Satan would bruise the savior on the heel. Or take Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 22, 7 and 8, has been told to sacrifice his only son of covenantal promise. We jump into the story. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, so son spoke to daddy. But Isaac spoke to Abraham and to his father and said, My father. And Abraham said to his son, here I am, son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Wouldn't that just tear your heart out as the father? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham took his son Isaac, who was probably 16 to 17 years old, to the place of sacrifice in his heart, believing that if that God let him kill his son, that his son would rise from the dead. Of course, the Lord intervened, and Isaac wasn't killed in that way. That's the gospel. We're still with Abraham and still in Genesis um, 22. Verses 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will give you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the Jews, as the stars of the heaven and the sand on which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed. That's the humanly speaking Christ the Messiah. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's the gospel in Genesis 22. So Adam heard the gospel in Eden. Abraham heard the gospel on the way to the sacrificing site. And Moses, Moses also had the gospel promised to him as he was a leader of close to 4 million Jews in slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. 
Exodus 12, 1 to 7. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Picture of Christ. A lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, so is Christ. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. This is the gospel in the Exodus. Going on still in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. For I, God speaks, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods, little g, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Watch now. God says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's the gospel. When the blood of the perfect Lamb of God is posted on the door frames, as it were, of our hearts and our lives, a justly wrathful God can pass over condemning us as sinners and let us to live, but not just to live, to let us to live abundantly, and not just to let us live abundantly, but to let us to live eternally with him. Motivation three has been the fathers of Judaism were promised the gospel. That's motivating. And of course, God is the perfect promise keeper. Let me ask you, can you think of one promise which God has made that he hasn't kept? Neither can I. He promised to crush Satan's head, and he will do so in the lake of fire. He promised to supply the sin sacrifice, and he has. Christ. He promised to pass over because of the blood, and he does. Christ's atoning blood. So watch this. When you and I share the gospel, have we ever thought about our sharing as being one installment of the retelling of God's promises made to the Israelites. If you'll think about that, if I'll think about that, I'll be motivating. I mean, can you see yourself? Let's do a little role play. Can, can I tell you about my Jesus? He's the one who's at the very center of God's true salvation message. And guess what? This true salvation message of which Christ is at the center, is the message which was promised to Adam in Eden. It was the message which was promised to Abraham on Mount Moriah. It's the salvation message which was promised to Moses in Egypt. 
That's motivating. This true salvation message found in both the Old and the New Testament, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, this way of salvation is based on grace. Unmerited favor. Acrostic. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace saved believers in the Old Testament, and grace saves believers in the New Testament, and grace saved believers in the church age in which we minister and live. Grace. When a person is saved by grace and knows it, we can stop striving to please God to win his favor on us. The difference between law and grace is the law said do. Grace says done. It was D.L. Moody who said, before I was saved, I did good works toward the cross. After I was saved, I do my good works from the cross. We are a people of grace. And our message should be laden with grace, God's grace. You see, all other false salvation messages, and there are a bunch, all other false salvation messages presented by all other world religions other than biblical Christianity are less than assuring because all other false salvation messages are not based on grace. They're based on human merit. And the question you have when you meet someone who's trying to get right with God by their own good works is this question. How will you know when you've done enough? They don't know. So that's why our Roman Catholic friends invented purgatory. How, if salvation is based on the amount of good works you've done, how do you know when you've done enough good works to be okay? You can't know. This is in sharp contrast to biblical Christianity that tells a person that God has reached for them before they ever could reach for God. God has reached for them first. And God can give forgiveness as a grace gift. And God can give a place in a literal heaven as a grace gift. In fact, neither of those things can be earned. You can't earn forgiveness for your sins, and you can't earn a heavenly home. If you're ever going to have forgiveness of your sins and a heavenly home, you're going to get both based on God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Motivating. So when we share the good news and the way of salvation in the gospel, we don't have hoops the people have to jump through. We say, Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus will wash you white as snow. 
Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Yes, this wonderful salvation message laced to the Old Testament, laced in the New Testament. This wonderful grace salvation is so motivating because it's as old as Adam and Abraham and Moses. And the last motivation to sharing this wonderful faith is that Jesus Christ's empty tomb distinguishes the gospel. Jesus Christ's empty tomb makes the gospel stand apart from any other false good news. Let's read several verses here in Paul's sermon, starting at verse 29. Now, this is Paul preaching. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, that is Christ, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for their children in that he has raised up Jesus and has also written the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, that is, he died. He was buried with his fathers, and he saw corruption, that is, his body decayed, not Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. On the third day, total distinguishing mark of our gospel. No other false gospel from any other world religion claims that their founder or best teacher is alive after death. It says in the definition, the best definition we have in the New Testament of um, the gospel, and go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Please. 1 Corinthians 15, the best definition of the gospel you'll find, I think, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5, this is after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, writing to the Corinthians, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I presented to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here it is, definition of the gospel. For I deliver to you of first of all that that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and it goes on. There are two parts to the gospel. Christ died for sins. This verse says that was predicted by the scriptures in the Old Testament. And he was buried. That proved that he actually died. Christ died for sins and Christ arose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was also predicted by the Old Testament scriptures. And the proof that he actually rose from the dead was he was seen alive after being dead. That's the gospel. Christ died for sins and arose. Totally distinguishing, unique, exclusive claim for the way of salvation that biblical Christianity holds and shares. 
were religions. In Islam, Muhammad is dead. In Buddhism, Buddha is dead. In Confucianism, Confucius is dead. In Sikhism, the guru Nanak is dead. But in Christianity, Jesus Christ is alive. And his empty tomb distinguishes our gospel as truth. And that's motivating that Jesus' tomb is empty. And so I hope and trust that you are motivated more going out from this, this service than what you were coming in to share your faith, to give the good news, the word of salvation as it pertains to, the word of God as it pertains to salvation. Being a pastor is very interesting. No two days are the same. And I have an interesting friend. I've never met him in person, but I've been interacting with him on WhatsApp for five months. I first heard about him from a college student in CBC, but this man doesn't live in our country. He's in another country. And uh, I heard about his uh, spiritual questions from a, uh, a college student who is a part of our church family. So she gave me his WhatsApp. And I've been interchanging WhatsApps with him for five months. And he has lots of questions. And because someone that he really, really loved has died, most all of his questions surround death or the afterlife. That's where he's at. He wants to know, where's my loved one now that she's died? And he wants to know, is she aware of my life on earth? Uh, did she stop existing after she died? Is reincarnation true? Could her spirit be invisibly present with me now, lingering on the earth? And the context of all these questions, five months' worth of questions, is that he knows he's not a believer. He says so. So where do you start with a hurting person who has these questions? I like baseball at spring training right now. I think my Blue Jays are going to do very well this year. Sorry. In baseball, you can hit it out of the park. But if you miss touching first base and the other team notices and appeals to the umpire, you're out. You could hit it 500 feet out of the stadium. If you miss first, you're out. First base, friends, is the gospel. Christ died for sins and arose. I could give him all kinds of answers to these questions about his loved one's death and the afterlife. If I don't get to the gospel, I've missed the point. So my first biblical answer, and by the way, all the answers I've given him to five months' worth of questions is Scripture. It's always Bible. But the first Bible answer I gave him when I met him on WhatsApp was how to get saved, how to be right with God. Christ died for sins and arose. That's how I found out he's not yet a Christian. He said, my mommy believed that. She dragged me to church, but I never believed it. I just went to church for her sake. That is sad, but it's also good. He realizes where he's at. So when I first had this relationship starting with him on WhatsApp, I immediately went to first base. <laughs> immediately, I made sure we tagged first base. Before I went around the diamond to second, third, or anything like that, I made sure we were on first. Now, he didn't get past first because he's never trusted Jesus yet. Will you pray for him? That he'll be born again? Because then second base and third base will make sense to him. And tagging up at home at the end of his life will be a blessing and not a curse. Please pray for him. 
And so I moved in my answering of his questions to the gospel, first base, and I've been repeatedly giving him first base in our interchanges on WhatsApp. And the gospel, I realize in doing this, has been sent to him by God. The gospel has been presented first to the Old Testament prophets. The gospel has been promised to the fathers of Judaism. And the gospel is totally distinguished by Christ's empty tomb. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you, watch, the word of this salvation has been sent. The word of this salvation is the gospel. Verse 32, it's called glad tidings. And we declare to you glad tidings. Don't miss getting the people in front of you who this week are lost. Don't miss getting them to first base. They may ask you about their marriage, their finances, a prodigal child, inflation, crime in the Bahamas. They may ask you any number of things, but don't fail to take them to first base. It's glad tidings. In fact, there are no more glad tidings than the gospel glad tidings. Will you stand with me, please? This sermon is uh, not for our intellects, it's for our hearts. Uh, this sermon is not theory, it's practice. This sermon is not history, it's today. As you're standing before a holy God who has saved you through the finished work of his son, I invite you quietly and individually to ask the Lord, is there someone you want me to share the gospel with this week. Maybe it's your spouse who sleeps beside you in the bed every night. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a person who's the cashier where you regularly transact. Maybe it's a high school classmate. Has the Lord identified that person to your individual hearts? Would you be willing to tell God in this time of prayer that with his help you'll phone that person or meet with that person this week? Will you say to God, I need your strength in exchange for my fear? I need your follow-through in exchange for my procrastination. Would you say to God that you're grateful that he's motivated you by showing you that the gospel has been sent, the gospel has been presented to the Old Testament prophets, the gospel was promised to the fathers of Judaism, and the gospel is distinguished from all the false gospels by an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ. Would you affirm those things to the Lord in your prayer? Good. He will delight in giving you opportunity for that person you've identified in your prayer time just now. And I'm even so bold as to say because of his grace and mercy, he will present persons that we are unaware of as we stand and pray at this moment 
this week that we can share the gospel with. May we be found faithful. May we give the true message that Christ has died for sins and arisen. And may we leave the results to you, Lord. Deliver us from Satan's persuasive lie that a person we've already shared the gospel with who didn't accept Christ is therefore no longer needing the gospel. Make us persistent and humble, loving. And as people we meet are careening down the roadway called life to a place called hell, give us the grace to speak about the detour off of that highway. His name is Jesus. He died and he lives. And we pray in his name together. Amen.